today we're starting a new section of the book of First uh, Samuel. This is theologians call this the, the the history of David's rise to power. We're we're now just not talking about King Saul, um, but we're also now David is entering the picture, uh, and we're going to see a contrast between Saul and David, and we're going to see. Also a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word as we read 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's listen intently together to God's inerrant word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And so Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him and trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to offer sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither is the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord, rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And when David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent 
to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us um, about our pride and all the different forms that that tends to pop up. But also, Lord, we thank you for teaching us about your spirit and how it can bring us uh, to true humility, emptying ourselves so that you can work powerfully through us, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to see that, how much you love us, so that we would be able to love you. And we pray that you would show us, Lord, how to be humble so that we might rejoice, uh, to not be so crazy hard on ourselves, but also that we might see Jesus, Lord, so we have good reason to believe and know that you do love us, Lord. So we pray that you would show us these things, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey the beauty of your word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I've seen uh, the the play Les Miserables twice in the theaters. Twice in the theater. Once in a super high-level high school play that my cousin was in and then once at the San Diego Civic Center, we just went a little while ago, and I saw the play, and I knew it was, there was, it was beautiful, there was something amazing about it, but it was kind of, I walked away thinking kind of like, kind of like, meh, well, that was cool. And then I saw, I, went, I wanted to get what it was all about, so I went home and I watched the movie with Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe, and it absolutely destroyed me. And the difference was I was able to hear the words of the songs with the subtitles going on, and I understood what was happening in that play, it absolutely destroyed and melted me. Um, not just the fact of, if you've seen the play, if you know anything about it, it is a portrayal of just the depths of sin and human suffering and the human condition in the fallen world. Just this stark portrayal of that that hits anybody in the heart. But even more than that is the, is the the juxtaposition of the two main characters. The one, the main, the hero, or the, the, uh, the protagonist, the hero of the story, is Jean Valjean. And he is the classic sinner saved by grace. He was a man who was uh, sentenced to prison, served 20 years in prison, came from absolutely nothing, and in the midst of this crime against a bishop, the bishop saved him from the authorities, gave him all the silver that he had tried to steal and, and, and gave him this unmerited grace and favor that completely turned his life around. And so he knew, he lived the rest of his life, Jean Valjean, knowing that he was a sinner that was saved by grace, and by living in that gratitude to God, he found himself desiring out of gratitude for God to live a life full of service, and then that service out of gratitude, not out of self-preservation, ended up in increasing joy in his life. And his life is a picture of, of beauty and salvation. Now, juxtaposed against him is the antagonist, Inspector Javert, who is a man who is so driven by law and by self-righteousness that he can't even entertain the possibility 
of the ability of grace to transform a life or the ability of grace uh, to be even active in a person's life. To him, you are either righteous, you are either a law keeper, or you have fallen from grace and you deserve the flame and the sword. And he believes, he believes that he is a righteous Christian and that his role in the world is not just to be perfect and righteous, but to make sure that everybody else is. And at the end of the story, uh, Jean Valjean extends grace to him and it so, it so disrupts his worldview that rather than accepting grace, he ends up killing himself because he will not and cannot accept the fact that God would extend unmerited grace and favor to him. That's the kind of brutal pride that can sneak into us and into our lives, even, even as Christians. And, and, and the, the, this is what I love about the prayer. It's so, not just that it's brilliant, but that it is the very best uh, Christian movie, Christian play of all time. And in, in the midst of just awful Christian movies and awful Christian art and the, this, the awfulness of, of, the, of the bad art in the Christian movies that stands as a, as a stumbling block from people even understanding what Christianity is. This movie portrays the essence of Christianity in such a beautiful form uh, in these rich tapestries of human experience that it's able to cut through those things and, and portray the essence of what Christianity is, which is God's unmerited favor and grace to sinners and that we are and are able to be complete even in our brokenness. And so in this story, why am I telling you about Les Mis? Because in the story, Saul is just like Javer. Javer. He wants to be great, but let's remember that, in this, that he just doesn't want to be great in the eyes of men. He also wants to be great in the eyes of God. And so because of that, he can never truly repent and accept grace because he's not repenting to live in and receive God's grace. He's repenting as a tool to manipulate God into making him righteous, which is what he wants to be. But David is like Jean Valjean. He knows he's not great. He knows he came from nothing and he knows that everything is a gift from God and ironically, that is what makes David great because in his smallness God is able to be big and so here's the big idea of the passage grace is like torment to the proud but it is beyond beautiful to the humble as a gift of the Holy Spirit let me say that again grace is like torment to the proud, but it is beyond beautiful to the humble as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at that one part at a time. Grace is like torment to the proud. Look at verse 14. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. 
If you read through the commentaries, there's all kinds of theological gymnastics uh, of trying to explain how it was that God could send a tormenting spirit. Part of the problem is in, in the Hebrew, it says spirit of evil. And three times it says from the Lord. The problem is really that the word, that word evil, ra'ah, is often used in different contexts. In, when I was going through the book of Ecclesiastes, that word is often used for despair or misery or... Um, Sadness, And so really, uh, it's talking about something that we're all really probably familiar with. Let's look at the, let me look at the context here for a minute before we explain what that is. The context here, for us to remember, I think, is that Saul is not an atheist. I think it's really easy for us, 21st century people, to, li- to watch Saul kind of disregard the commands of the Lord, and just kind of relate him to modern-day atheists or agnostics who are disregarding God. But that's not true. Saul was in a deeply religious context. Saul was at temple every week. Saul was wanting to participate in all of these national worship services. And, and Saul was the one wanting to offer the sacrifice. Saul was always wanting to be and was a deeply religious man Saul was never depicted in the text as engaging or corrupted by any kind of sexual sin, as David was, as Solomon was, as as Samson was. Um, But what he does do, or what what he doesn't want to do, he doesn't want to wait on the Lord. He doesn't want to give God all the glory. He wants glory in the eyes of men, but also in the eyes of God. Saul wants to offer the sacrifice Saul wants to bring the spoil to God as the work of his hands. Saul wants to stand before God as the victor at the national worship ceremony. And so if Saul wants glory so badly, what does that mean that he doesn't want? What Saul doesn't want, what he can't accept is grace. Because that would mean that he's not great. Which is and happens to be the most common and the most dangerous way for us to reject God. Think about, think about the Gospels. Think about Jesus when He was interacting with people engaged in all kinds of sin. The woman caught in adultery and sexual sin. The tax collectors who were thieves. Uh, even the thief on the cross who was probably a murderer. When He was engaging with people in these deep, levels of sin he was merciful and gentle and kind but when it came to people who would not refuse to accept grace who were insisting on their own righteousness before God he was l- dropping the hammer on them in, in, in crazy words of judgment why? because that is the most dangerous thing of all Because if we reject grace, we reject God's love. If we reject God's love, it's impossible for us to love God in return. And it strips us of all power, of all spiritual power. That's why Saul was so dangerous to himself and so dangerous to others. And so now listen, that's the state that Saul is in. That's the particular flavor with which he's rejecting God. And what does God do? Well, think about it. Think about the last time or think about a time that you were in like deep rebellion against God in one way or another. How did you feel? 
Did you feel great? Were you feeling super chipper and on top of the world? Or did you feel convicted? Was there an unsettling in your heart? Was there a discouragement, a despair, a, a, knowing, a known disconnect with God? You just knew something was wrong, almost a torment. That harmful spirit in the text, spirit of evil, really is a spirit of misery. Listen, Ecclesiastes 7.14 says this. It says, it says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other. Why would God create adversity? Why would God send a spirit of adversity to us? Because of grace. Listen. God is not... We read this and we think, wow, God's giving up on Saul. Not just giving up on Saul, but He's like sending an evil spirit to torment him. Just just like rub His face in it. That's not what is happening. God is not giving up on Saul. He is instead sending him a convicting spirit out of his mercy and out of his grace to bring, to drive Saul to repentance and he never gives up on him. How do I know that's true? The music. The music. David comes in and plays the music and it relieves Saul's despair. Now, what is David playing? What music is David playing? Is he playing the Canaanite top 40? No. He's playing the Psalms. He's playing these songs from his heart, of this glory to God and these vibrant, worshipful songs to God. And I don't know about you, but I can get to the place where I'm so discouraged about my sin or I'm so convinced that God hates me because of my sin or doesn't love me that reading my Bible doesn't help, praying doesn't help, listening to a sermon doesn't help, but you can play certain music and it absolutely melts me. And I'm crying. God... Why? Because it's reminding me and God uses it as He intended to remind me how much He loves me. And when I remember that, it frees my heart to love Him back and out of that, out of that comes joy. So God had not given up on Saul. He did allow him to feel the despair of his sin. But because, because He loved Him. And He does that for us because He loves us. In order to bring Him into the beauty of grace. Second point. First point, grace is like torment to the proud. But grace is beyond beautiful to the humble. Look at, uh, look at verse 28. Oh, no, no, no. Look at verse, if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to read this if you don't. I'm going to read verse 15, 28 from the last chapter, and then I'm going to read verse 16 to 7. It says, it says, and Saul, no, and Samuel said to him, to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Talking about David. And in this chapter, 16 verse 7, it says, for the Lord sees not as a man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what is it? 
what, it is, what is it exactly about David that makes him better than Saul? What is it about David? What is it about his heart that makes him different? Is it because David's more courageous than Saul? Is it because David is stronger than Saul? Is it because David is in, him, in himself, like we want to always think, better than Saul personally? Well, the answer, the surprising answer, is that the thing that made David different is that David was absolutely ordinary. <laughs> Maybe he was less than ordinary. The description of him in this chapter, what says he was ready with beautiful eyes, handsome of appearance. With Westerners, we read that and we think, oh, those are good qualities. He's a, you know, he's a robust, handsome, vigorous man. But that's not, that's not what that's trying to convey. In the Hebrew, it's trying to convey that he's boyish. He has boyish, young features, that he is small. He's, he's, like, a, he's like a beautiful, young child. There's nothing kingly about him whatsoever. In fact, his father... Didn't even, consider, didn't even think it necessary to bring him because he was so unkingly. He was so opposite of every expectation of what someone must be to be acceptable or to be a strong leader or to be pleasing to God or to be powerful, really. And that's the dichotomy, which means, this means that David's election as king of Israel and his election to God had nothing to do with him. And that's really what God's trying to portray. This had nothing to do with David. There was nothing about David whatsoever in and of himself that made him worthy or, 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 or good candidate to be king. Uh, and that, that's the main point God's trying to make. This is a perfect example of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 where he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what God's after. That we not boast in His presence. That we not boast of our own greatness. That we not boast of our own righteousness. Why? Because over the course of time in David's life, we see how this understanding so greatly affected him. It, because of that, David knew how much God absolutely loved him just because God had chosen to love him. Period. And that is what empowered David to love God. He was completely free of any nonsense of, I have to measure up, I have to do this, I have to achieve this standard, I have to become this level of sanctified in order for God to love me. He knew from the gate God had chosen to love him 
because of nothing in himself, just because God had chosen to love him and display his power through him. And David was so marveled by that that his whole life was an expression of love for God out of gratitude for this undeserved, unshakable, unbreakable grace that he had received. You know, David is not sinless. Arguably, David is a more immoral man than Saul. Think about that. The course of his life. David is, is uh, uh, engaged in gross sexual immorality. He's a murderer. None of that's described about Saul. The only thing described about Saul is his pride. His refusal to accept grace. And yet... The kingdom is ripped away from Saul because of that. And David in his repentance of those failures remains in the kingship, remains in God's favor. That should tell us something so important about how God sees us, what God considers important, and what is truly dangerous, and what is truly destructive. So when David repents, listen... He does not repent. He doesn't use repentance as a cover for his own self-righteousness like Saul. He doesn't use repentance as a way to make God make him glorious. He uses repentance. Uh, he repents and he celebrates God's grace. Listen to Psalm 32. This is one of my favorite psalms. Completely changed my understanding of repentance and forgiveness when I read this, when I understood this psalm. This is David after considering his gross sins of sexual immorality and the murder that he committed. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. Open, transparent about the truth. And he said, um... I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God, he understood there was immediate forgiveness and grace to him in that. Doesn't say anything about miraculous transformation. Doesn't say anything about anything other than the fact that David relied on God's grace more than he relied on his personal righteousness and that set him free to worship God. And this, this is what David majored in. David, this is what made David a man after God's own heart. This is what made him better than Saul. It was that he knew he wasn't great. And that was okay because he knew that God was great and that God had chosen to love him. And then ironically, counterintuitively, this is what made David great. That's what made him so powerful. It wasn't his own power. It was his emptiness that allowed the power of the Spirit to work through him. And that's why people miss Jesus. That's why people miss Christianity. It's so counterintuitive. Even Christians can miss this because it all seems so weak. It all seems so insignificant. But that's the point. It's just not about you. It's not about us. It's about God working through us. It's about us coming to grips with us being small, 
so that God can be great and that in that, God then has the freedom to work powerfully through us in the world. That's the last, by the power of the Spirit, last point. So what does all this have to do with us and even more specifically, what does this have to do with Jesus? Okay, so David was empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit rushed upon him. He was humble. Okay, that was David. But what does that have to do with us? Now, let me let, want you to stick with me for just a minute. I'm going to give you a brief theology lesson on the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament. Two minutes, okay? Stick with me. Let's put our thinking caps on. Everybody, deep breath. Let it out. Okay. Ready? Here we go. This is important. Foundational. This is super important. This is, it's going to pay off. Trust me. Okay. Quick Old Testament lesson on the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers as it does us today. It's all kinds of like wondering about that. What was the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament saints? The role of the Spirit in the Old Testament saints was the Spirit of God would come and indwell covenant head leaders in power, priests, prophets, kings. And the Spirit would be with the people through them, but not in dwelling everybody like us. So it would rush upon David and give David power. It would rush upon Samson and give Samson power. It would rush upon the high priest and give the high priest power, but not every, or every average believer, not every person had the indwelling Spirit amongst them. Moses, there was an instance where Moses uh, was convinced that he needed more, he needed the elders, 70 elders of Israel to help him judge the people of Israel. And so Moses gathered the 70 elders of Israel and said, I'm going to give you all part of my spirit that the Lord has given me. And there was this little model of the spirit moving out into the 70 elders of Israel. And in that story, Moses says, Moses says, he laments, he says, um, he said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And then the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2, he prophesies the reality of Moses' wish. He says that in the new covenant, in the new covenant, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All God's people would have that spirit. And then so the New Testament comes, Jesus is baptized, and in his baptism, he is anointed as the Messiah. Mashiach. He is anointed as the Messiah of Israel, not by oil like David was, but by what the oil represented. The power, the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him, and he is anointed with power as the covenant head of Israel, prophet, priest, and king. And then Jesus reconciles us to God through the weakness of the cross. Jesus ascends into heaven, and then what happens? On Pentecost, Peter, people come out and say, they're, they're prophesying, they're speaking in tongues, and people are saying, you guys are drunk. And Peter says, they're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning, as if no one's ever been drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, right? Uh, <laughs> they've never been part of a fraternity, apparently. But he says, they're not drunk, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel spoke. Jesus has ascended to heaven through him, comes a torrent of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is now indwelling and moving in and through every single believer. 
The theologians call that the democratization of the Holy Spirit. So that the New Testament, big difference is, it's not just the kings, the priests, and the prophets that have the fullness of the Spirit, that we as ordinary believers, everybody who is in Christ, because the sacrifice has been made, because we've been reconciled to God, the Spirit of God flows freely through Christ and into all of us so that the same Spirit that rushed upon David in power and the kings and the judges and the priests and the prophets and the covenant heads of the Old Testament, that same Spirit is now rushing in and through us. Think about that. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. Think of the possibilities if that's true. But you know the one thing that can grieve that or quench it quicker than anything, even quicker than sin, is pride. It's that crazy, unshakable belief that we have to make ourselves righteous before God, before He'll love us, that more than anything will quench and grieve that power of the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't have to be like that. The promise in this is that we can, and what God is constantly reiterating to us, why we come here to worship every Sunday, to remind us over and over again that we can be small. We can be complete in our brokenness. We can take our place as insignificant, as empty, and in and through that, remember that let God be God, to let God be great, and to remember, just like the song we sang before the sermon, that God is strong, that God is sure, that He is life, that He endures, that He is good, that He is always true, that He is light breaking through. And what that means is that we are found. It means that we are His. It means that we are now loved. It means that we have been made pure by Christ's righteousness. It means that we have life, which means that you can breathe, which means that you are healed, which means that you are free in Christ's name. Amen? Lord, we love you with love beyond measure because of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we pray that you would annihilate from us the wicked desire to prove ourselves before you. We pray that you would help us to be content in our brokenness, Lord, that we would strive by the power of your Spirit to be sanctified, to be holy, but not as an act of self-preservation, not as an act to make you love us, because that will just drive us from you, but instead as an act of worship, as an act of devotion. And as we do that, in and through that, just as Jean Valjean found out, just as David knew, just as all of us know, in and through that, 
is the path to life and to joy and to power in your kingdom. And that's what we pray that you would do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.